10 through 20. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault, between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. The Gospel of the Lord. Well, if you are just joining us uh, for the first time, perhaps this morning, we are in the middle of a sermon series where we are talking about the church. Uh, what is the church? What is this body of believers that, that God is building? What are we doing here on Sunday morning? Uh, this comes on the heels of a sermon series we finished in the fall, I believe, on the book of Luke. Um, Luke's gospel, of course, telling us the story of the life of Christ, his ministry, his death, and resurrection. And it sort of ends with us thinking about what is next, where the gospel is preached, uh, forgiveness and repentance uh, to all nations in, in Christ's name. And... The church is the fruit of that. So it's sort of the now what. Uh, what do we do now? Last week, uh, we looked at Paul's vision, excuse me, for membership in the body of Christ uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And my goal was to encourage us all, myself included, to recognize one another as members of the same body, using that metaphor that, that Paul uses, that image to value each and every one, and to see each one as necessary, just as we naturally find each part of our own body to be necessary. If someone confesses that Jesus is Lord, that comes from the Holy Spirit, and we never dismiss that person, the temple of the Spirit, as an inconvenience, a burden, or a problem. My problem is not my brother in Christ, but my brother's problems are my problems. We're all in this together. We have all most likely had conflicts in church contexts, maybe even in the context of our church, and the challenge for us is to avoid looking at that other person on the other side of that conflict as the other side, or heaven forbid, the enemy. But what happens when someone who claims Jesus is Lord, and yet they sin against us. They're offending or hurting someone. And what happens when there is no apparent repentance from that sin? To put the question another way, how does Jesus command for us to love one another, the command to love each other as Christ has loved you, 
how does that reconcile with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 about judging those who are on the inside of the church? Anyone bears the name of brother and is in unrepentant sin. How do we love each other and judge each other? That doesn't seem uh, very nice, does it? And the short answer is that judging those on the inside, as Paul intends the phrase, is in fact a way of loving one another. Well, the goal today is to take a look about at, at how that accountability is supposed to work and why it is in fact loving. But let me say at the outset, as far as I am aware, uh, there are no issues of this nature uh, going on in the life of the church right now. That doesn't mean they don't exist. It's entirely possible that people are sinning against each other and confronting sin privately and resolving it, and I don't even need to be aware of it. I just want to clarify that I am not preaching this message because of anything that I'm aware of that's going on right now, and that's what makes it a good time to talk about this, because as far as I know, there's not something going on. It's like renewing our safety plan every year or so. You don't wait until there's a tornado to look it up and remember where you're supposed to go during a tornado, right? You, you review these things. And like the safety plan, we hope this is all purely theoretical. We certainly pray we never get to uh, the let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector part of Matthew 18, although you know, the church has unfortunately, in the past. It shouldn't happen very often. We should not be eager to put this into practice. But if the situation calls for it, we also shouldn't be hesitant to confront sin, if that makes sense. So here we go, a famous Matthew 18 passage. We want to have a clear understanding of it should the situation arise. And where do we start if we want a clear understanding of any passage of Scripture? We start by looking at the context, right? Chapter 18 of Matthew is all about how we treat each other in the church, and deeper than that, how we see one another, what kind of attitude we should have toward one another in the church. It starts, Matthew 18, 1 through 4, with Jesus' disciples having this discussion of who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus rejects the question and the attitude and assumptions behind the question. Jesus responds by calling over a little child and saying, you need to humble yourselves, basically, and enter the kingdom like this little child, or you're not even getting in to begin with, let alone be the greatest. So the point is clear that they're fussing and fighting and, and jockeying for position within the kingdom is, totally misses, un, misunderstands what the kingdom is all about. We're to be humble and helpless and really just happy to be there, like a little child dependent on God for everything that we have in the kingdom. It's just plain silly to fight over who's the greatest or who's the best when not one of us in and of ourselves is actually qualified to be there to begin with. We're there by grace, right? So in verses 5 through 9, just brief overview here, Jesus keeps using that image of little children to describe other believers. He calls us to welcome one another as little children, the way he welcomes this little child. Because when we do that, we welcome Christ himself. And then he gives a very stern warning not to cause little children to sin, 
He also gives us a very stern warning to fight against sin in our own lives. It's that we call hyperbole, cut off your hand if it causes you to sin. We know most likely didn't mean this literally because um, the initial followers of Jesus weren't known for having only one hand and only one eyeball. And I, you know, I wonder, what if both hands caused you to sin? You can cut off the first one, but then how are you going to cut off the other one? I don't, these are the things that I think about while I'm preparing to preach that I probably shouldn't say during the sermon, um, but I like to anyway, just for your benefit. Um, I don't know that it benefits you in any way, but, it, you know, it's fun for me. But then we come to the immediate context to get back into this now. The immediate context, the passage directly before these steps about correcting your brother, and it's the parable of the lost sheep, right? Jesus says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. God sees them like the lost sheep in the parable. This is where the man has a hundred sheep, and one of them is lost, and he leaves the 99 sheep in the fold to go rescue that one sheep. And when, he, and when it's found, he rejoices over that one sheep more than he rejoices over the 99 that never strayed. And the point is that this is how God sees believers who are off the path. This is how God saw us when we were off the path before he brought us into the fold to begin with. Precious lost lambs in danger and in need of rescuing. And that needs to be our attitude as well toward the lost and certainly should also be our attitude toward one another if we see someone straying. And in practice, that attitude will look like the steps in Matthew 18, 15 through 20. But now, before we get to those steps, skip to the passage immediately after, starting in verse 21. After Jesus says all this stuff about children and lost sheep and telling them how to seek reconciliation when someone sins against him, what do the disciples ask? How many times do we have to forgive them, right? Seven? You know, surely there's a limit, seven strikes and you're out, something like that. Jesus says 70 times 7, and then he tells this parable of the servant who owed his master the equivalent of 20 years' wages, but his master forgives him. What does the servant do? He finds another fellow servant who owes him a much smaller debt, and he refuses to forgive, and it's just completely ridiculous, right? How can you have this debt forgiven and then be so petty toward your servant, your, your fellow servant? If God's forgiven us a debt that we would be repaying forever in hell, how on earth are we going to turn around and be unforgiving toward one another? Any debt someone owes me is something small compared to what I owed God. But my debt to God has been completely erased. So how should we love one another? That is the context of confronting sin in Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. It's not just the context, I would argue, it's, it's the source. It's not that this strictness of confronting sin needs to coexist with this love, even though they're in tension. It's, this is what love looks like in practice when someone is straying. It shouldn't just be that I'm offended and I want to be vindicated, I want it to be clear that you're in the wrong and I'm in the right, no, it should be that my brother or sister is straying and I want them to come back. I'm eager to forgive. 
Because love does not ignore sin. God's love does not ignore sin, right? That's why he rescued me and why he rescued me the way he did. Not by ignoring sin. He canceled the debt of sin, nailing it to the cross, paid for it in Christ. And he is still in my life in the business of breaking the power of that canceled sin, as we sang earlier. Hebrews 12, the Lord disciplines those he loves. This posture is probably more important than the process of correcting sin. Getting the heart right, I think, matters more and it's probably harder to do than, than getting the steps right. But obviously the steps are there for a reason. We do need to discuss them and consider how this is a loving process and clear up maybe some misconceptions uh, along the way. There is, by the way, more to be said about this, this sort of thing than I can possibly squeeze into one sermon, and some things would be better for a random Q&A, or there's just so many different potential situations you, you can think about, and what do you do in this situation, and that situation, and so this, you may be left with questions. You probably will be left with questions. I'm happy to try to answer those um, at another time, another place something like that, but we'll do the best we can this morning to give an overview. And to do this, I have essentially five points, the first of which I've covered already, and the second of which maybe I've hinted at. The points are summarized by the words posture, purpose, parameters, process, and power. A bunch of points, they all start with P. It's my Baptist seminary education showing again, right? Uh, the posture, the purpose, the parameters, Process, process itself, and then the power. So I've already talked about the posture, which is love, not self-righteousness, not competitiveness, not eagerness to tear anyone down or vindicate yourself, but eager to forgive, eager to regain your brother or your sister. And that implies the second point, which is the purpose. Uh, you can probably see where I'm going, and we, we don't need to spend a whole lot of time on this, but the purpose is actually clearly stated by Jesus in verse 15. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. That's our motive, that's our purpose, that's what we're trying to accomplish in correcting anyone to restore the broken relationship and get your brother or your sister back. Now, when someone sins against you, it's hard to remember that, isn't it? It's our own sinful nature is going to respond in sinful ways, most likely. And if things get tense or heated, you know, your, your God-given sort of fight-or-flight instinct might kick in where it really isn't helpful. You are responsible for exercising control nonetheless. But what that means is that our default reaction is probably going to be to lash out or to just shut down might decide to give that person a piece of our mind, or maybe find somebody else to give a piece of our mind about that person, or just shut down. We're done with that person. What a jerk. So the challenge is to believe what God's word says about our brothers and sisters in Christ, not what our sinful nature says about them or might be shouting to us about them. Do we believe that they are our enemy or a threat to us, or do we believe God's word? They are a straying sheep, a brother in need of rescuing. At this point, uh, I do need to make some point about the parameters of 
Matthew 18, 15, because we can make a big mess if we try to make these instructions work for situations that Jesus was not talking about. It says, if your brother sins against you, the parameters are that this is essentially a private matter between two brothers or sisters in Christ. That's why part of the process, why it unfolds as it does. You go to him privately to keep the private matter private. In other parts of the New Testament, though, we see different procedures modeled in different situations. So, for example, think about the New Testament's instruction on dealing with false teachers. Matthew 18 doesn't apply in situations of false teachers. Those who promote within the church a false gospel lead others to sin or are otherwise quarrelsome and creating divisions. We can tell them to take a hike and warn others to do the same. Galatians 1, let them be anathema, not take them aside and privately correct them. Anyone comes preaching a different gospel, let them be anathema. Romans chapter 16, you mark and avoid such men, right? And speaking of Galatians, there's another public situation here in Galatians 2 where Paul confronts Peter publicly. Peter's not a false teacher, but in that situation, Peter was publicly sinning by dividing himself from the Gentiles, only eating with the Jews out of fear of this Judaizing uh, circumcision party. The sin was public. He was leading other people into sin. It wasn't just a private matter. Peter, Paul did not pull him aside. He confronted him, he says, to his face in front of everyone. It was public and it needed to be dealt with that way. Or 1 Timothy 5, an interesting case. This is where Paul says not to charge, not to allow a charge against an elder except two or three witnesses. So there's some concern for standards of, of evidence. I think when somebody's a public uh, figure, you can be more subject to wild accusations and you need to have some standard of evidence. But then he says on the other side of the coin here, if an elder does persist in sin, I believe he's still talking about elders here, then Paul says, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. This is someone who is a leader of the church and their persistent sin is a matter of concern to the church as a whole. When you're a leader, it's not simply private anymore. Or 1 Corinthians 5, there we have not a leader, but this church member who's apparently having an affair with his stepmother or something like that. And here again, Paul doesn't say to pull him aside and go through the slow process of calling him to repentance. He writes to the Corinthians and says to remove him from among them now. It's a sin so grievous that even the Gentiles wouldn't tolerate it. And it's known to everybody. So there are cases when correcting sin isn't a private matter, whether because the sin is done or known publicly, or because it's an elder who persists in, in grievous sin, and therefore the church needs to know. Sometimes, uh, sometimes those who say heretical or quarrelsome things online, for example, then complain when someone corrects them publicly, right? That, that doesn't really work. Uh, you're not, when you publicly sin, you're not entitled to be privately corrected about it. We could also add that Matthew 18 doesn't nullify the authority of the government in Romans 13 to punish criminal offenses, you know. Hopefully this one never happens, but just as an example, one church member murders another. 
Well, the offended party is deceased and therefore unable to go to his brother and confront him about the murder, so I guess our hands are tied. There's nothing we can do. Matthew 18, can't, can't follow those steps, right? We don't want to just gossip about it or take our brother to a heathen judge, do we? Well, yes, we do. I mean, maybe not the gossip part, but, you know, the magistrate has an authority here. What I'm getting at with all of this hypothetical stuff is that Matthew 18 is not an official procedure that applies to every case. Matthew 18 is not the only passage in Scripture that deals with the issue of confronting sin. We need the whole counsel of God's Word, not for some reason reducing it to one familiar passage of Scripture. In Matthew 18, Jesus is talking about something that is a sin simply between one brother and another, and the principle is to keep it private when it's already private. It's also worth pointing out that Jesus says, if your brother sins against you. I'm convinced that many of the conflicts that I have seen in churches over the years, in a lifetime of being in churches that, I mean, not a lifetime, I, mean, I guess if I die tomorrow, it's a lifetime, but whatever, you get, you get my point. In my life of having been in churches, I'm convinced that a lot of them start with miscommunications and misunderstandings, maybe based on different perspectives, different personalities, Maybe most of them begin this way. Now, sin frequently does enter into the picture later on, right? I'm not saying that it's never sin, but it frequently doesn't start that way. This concept has been misused in some cases, but we can mistakenly think, if I'm offended, someone must have sinned against me. We sometimes assume the worst of people, assume motives that we aren't there, especially when we feel offended or our feelings are hurt or we're angry. People sometimes imply or even explicitly say things that aren't quite what they meant to say as well. So it's worth just taking a step back and, and confirming whether my brother did sin against me or whether he misspoke or I misunderstood or we just weren't on the same page. You know, hey, when you said that, did you mean this? And the answer might be, well, no, I'm sorry. I can see how it sounded like that. I apologize. I didn't mean that. I meant this. These kind of conversations could go a long way, perhaps. But So I, I don't think Matthew 18, also on the same lines, I don't think it necessarily prohibits seeking counsel before you talk to that person. You'd need to be honest with yourself that you're not using this as an excuse to badmouth someone you're upset with. But people have come to me and asked for advice in situations like this, and I don't automatically take that to, to be gossip either. Once again, what I'm getting at is keeping the process in Matthew 18 within the parameters of Matthew 18. The conversation doesn't always have to start with, I am hereby charging you under Matthew 18, verse 15, subsection B of the New Testament. Um, we, 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 can, we can use some, some sense here uh, as well. But then again, Sometimes it does need to start there, and sometimes it does get there, right? The procedure is there for those times. So here's our next P word, the procedure. And the procedure is, is well known. Uh, first, talk to your brother privately in verse 15. If he listens, great. If not, what do you do? Well, you take one or two others along with you. Jesus says this is so every charge can be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses, probably doesn't mean that they were witnesses to the original offense, but they're witnesses to the conversation itself. 
in case it does get to the next step, you'll want to have witnesses. But having witnesses to the conversation, I think, maybe adds some persuasive weight to your brother as he's confronted with sin. And apparently they are also there to, to help encourage and admonish him to repent, since the next verse says, if he refuses to listen to them, if he does refuse to listen, Jesus says, tell it to the church. Now, just taking a step back here, Jesus doesn't give details on exactly what this looks like, how we tell it to the church. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that raising your hand at the end of the service to make an announcement uh, and ask the church to uh, treat someone like a Gentile and a tax collector is probably not the productive way to go about it, right? Usually this would be something in a members meeting and something hopefully you've talked to the elders uh, are involved at this point. Uh, you know, there's no reason an elder can't or two can't be the one or two you brought with you, not that they have to be, but the leaders of the church, I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say are still leading the church even at the tell it to the church stage. Some would say that telling it to the elders is telling the church. Uh, maybe to think of it as the, the institution, the leadership structure. I have some issues with the idea that the elders are the church. The church is the, the believers gathered or assembled together, not just the, the, the leadership. Um, you know, in, in our congregational life, uh, the way we've structured our bylaws, you know, the is that the elders do make a decision to add or remove uh, from membership, but it doesn't become official until the congregation is informed of it so that there is accountability ultimately in the hands of, of the congregation to affirm this. This is all, I know, very exciting. Once you mention the bylaws in a sermon, just everybody is right with you right there, right? That's just, uh, we love bylaws. I'm just saying that however the church processes this, It'll still be led by those leaders who hold God accountable for the souls of all involved. And whatever the process, if the church needs to be informed that one of our members has sinned and stubbornly refuses to repent. If we are members of one body, it, it ought to concern us all. And the church needs to be involved to help call that member to repentance that individual needs to see that the church is not okay with the behavior and refuse, the refusal to repent. I would venture to add at this point, I think it's implied in the next couple of verses, everyone needs the church's prayers as well. Everybody involved needs the church's prayers. Well, as we see there in verse 17, if he does refuse to listen even to the church. Jesus says, as we know, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Let me just say um, out of the blue here that um, given the analogy of the church as a body with all of us as members, I don't think that should be an easy decision. Uh, I talked Somehow last week I brought up the subject of amputation. I don't know why. This is, these are the things that just come out of my mouth and I don't know what, where they come from. But, you know, it's only in extreme cases. What I, what I was saying last week is any member of our body is in pain or, or having trouble. We usually do everything we can to try to save that body part 
whatever it is. We would rather keep it, no matter how small or minor it seems to be, right? It's only in extreme cases uh, that you might have to have a part of your body removed. This is where the analogy comes into play here. In an extreme case, there may be a member that we have to remove from membership in the body because of unrepentant sin, and I think it should be as heavy a weight on us as if we had to remove part of our own body. It is a last resort. It is something that should grieve us, that should hurt. Well, this part of the passage, by the way, as far as what the removal looks like, don't believe Jesus means shunning or avoiding that person entirely. That is how many people treated Gentiles and tax collectors in Jesus' day, but it's not how Jesus treated Gentiles and tax collectors. I think the point is that we don't treat that person as part of the church any longer. Practically speaking, we would remove them from the role of membership and ask that they stop partaking in the Lord's Supper Uh, We'd need to ask them that because in most cases, not all cases, but most cases, I would prefer, uh, I would want someone to continue coming to church on Sunday mornings to hear the word of God. Uh, Maybe it'd be hard for us to imagine why they would want to at, at that point, but it does happen. Again, it's not shunning. We're not saying that we want nothing to do with you. You're dead to us. We for sure know that you are lost and going to hell. We're not saying any of that. We can't say that. We're, in fact, still hoping and praying to gain our brother again. This is a subtle point, but an important one. When a church removes someone from membership, well, let me take a step back from that. When we receive someone as a member, we are affirming their profession of faith. As well as we can humanly tell, that person has credibly understood the gospel and seems to be following Christ, and we can't see into hearts, and we don't, you know, put a spotlight on somebody and interrogate them, but do you have a credible profession of faith? And so when someone is removed from membership, all that means is that we simply cannot responsibly affirm that profession of faith anymore. We can't responsibly confirm that you are a believer. We'd be afraid of giving you false assurance based on the way that you are living. We hope that you are a believer, and if you are, uh, we know that means that in time you will repent, and that's what we pray happens. Again, there's a lot more that we could say about this. This is a heavy topic. If you're just joining us this Sunday, um, you know, uh, I hope you'll visit us next week as well. <laughs> this, is, this is heavy stuff for us to, to talk about, uh, but Again, a lot more that we could say. There are tons of different situations to think through and and how to handle this in a careful and sensitive and yet firm and and clear and, and loving way. The key, once again, though, is that every stage of this process is governed by our purpose and our posture, love of one another that drives us to do everything in our power to regain a brother, not just words saying that we love you because mere words are going to come across as manipulative because if it's mere words without love it is manipulative but it's genuine love for one another well the final point was power and i use the word power 
uh, because it started with a P. Authority or authorization might be a better word, but they both start with A, so I couldn't do it. It's shocking that Jesus calls us to this sort of thing, right? It tells someone sin to the whole church. It shows us something important about the church, that this isn't just a social club or run-of-the-mill sort of voluntary association that we enter into. Jesus has authorized us, even commanded us, to hold each other accountable in this way. And, and honestly, this may seem like something that, um, you know, it wouldn't be appealing to our, our culture. Why on earth would you do this? But then when you look at some of the, the scandals and the abuse situations and things that have happened in churches where sin has been tolerated, you know, that's why 1 Corinthians 5 comes into play. Such a sin isn't even named among the Gentiles. Even the Gentiles would expect you to, to deal with serious sin within the life of the church. If you say that you're following Jesus, how do you not hold one another accountable for that? Jesus has required us to do this. Perhaps a better way to put that would be Jesus himself is the one who is seeking to work through the church to hold us accountable in this way, to guide us and keep us. This is the message of verses 18 through 20, I would argue. Uh, verse 18 seems difficult. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Does that mean that God is putting our, the decision entirely in our hands and he'll just go with whatever decision we make? Surely not. Uh, God's justice doesn't bow to human decisions. Uh, if you want a chapter and verse on God's justice not bowing to humans' decisions, uh, I don't know, just open the Bible. It's pretty much all of them, right? everywhere. It's the opposite, though, I think. As one commentator put it, God is behind the community's decisions regarding the forgiveness or condemnation of its wandering sheep or members. And that fits better with the next two verses, which are encouraging us, uh, verse 19, especially, to saturate this whole process in prayer, which if it gets to that point, I, I think we would be hopefully eager to do anyway. If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Again, commonly made point, but this verse has to be understood in context as well. It's not about asking on earth for a private jet and your Father will give them. It's, it's in the context of church discipline, right? prayer for wisdom and discernment and a loving spirit because, as we mentioned, our sinful nature is not prone to go that direction. We need God's help for both the wisdom and for the will to do what he has called us to. We need his love in order to spur on our own love for our brother so that our actions in that situation might then reflect his will. And of course, it comes with a blessed promise that we would especially need at such a time where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Christ is with us and we're not doing this alone. We can trust that God will guide our steps because 
Christ is with us through the Spirit, working to bring our words and our actions in line with God's will. That means we don't need to be afraid to act when we need to act. If anything, Christ is with us, we should be more concerned not to act. Jesus has some strong warnings for churches that tolerate sin. If you read some of the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, Christ is passionate about the purity of his church, his bride. So the church is not just another social club. The church is the body of Christ, a temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. This should give us great joy and honor and wonder. We are part of the kingdom of God. Each of us is here by grace. We have entered as little children, not by our merit or accomplishment, but because Christ has welcomed us, welcomed us in. And what a wonderful thing that he has welcomed us into. We were lost sheep, and he rescued us by his blood to bring us into his sheepfold. Paul says to the Corinthians, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is what I want us to take away from this for today. The application is not, let's all be on the lookout for opportunities to move toward excommunicating one another. This is not about suddenly becoming the sin police. So we can prove that we have paid attention and we're taking Matthew 18 seriously. For today, the application is to recognize the beauty of belonging to the body of Christ. Recognize the price that was paid to bring each of us here. Receive anew the love that was poured out for us on the cross. Remember that same love was poured out for each brother and sister in Christ. That's the attitude that we will need to guide us if Matthew 18 situations arise, and that's the attitude we also need to guide us if Matthew 18 situations don't arise. In tenderness he sought me, weary and sick with sin, and on his shoulders brought me back to the fold again, while angels in his presence sang until the courts of heaven rang. Oh, the love that sought me. Oh, the blood that bought me. Oh, the grace that brought me to the fold. Wondrous grace that brought me to the fold. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for passages of Scripture like Matthew chapter 18, where we are told what to do in cases of unrepentant sin. It is a heavy thing for us to think about. It's much easier for us to talk about the love of God for the one sheep who is straying and the love and forgiveness we are to have toward one another. Accountability is a, a heavier topic, and yet we thank you because... We know there have been times and there may be times again where we need this kind of instruction. But we pray um, most of all that whatever 
situations may be around the corner for us as a body of believers. That you would help us to love one another with a love that is modeled on your love for us, your grace toward us. That though we were sinners, Christ died for us. The wonderful grace that was poured out for us on the cross. Your grace that while we were running full tilt in the opposite direction, pursued us, brought us back. Again, we do hope and pray that uh, we don't need to go through these steps with one another. But whether we do or not, we pray that you would help us to remember this love with which you've loved us and let that power of your gospel shape our hearts that we might love each other as Christ has also loved us so that the love of Christ would be on display in our fellowship with one another, that you might be glorified in us. We ask these things in Christ Jesus' name.